You're listening to The Zeitgeist, a podcast focused on Germany, the United States, and the transatlantic relationship. Join us as we discuss economics, politics, security, and more. I'm Jeff Rafke, president of the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies at Johns Hopkins University. Well, I'd like to welcome everyone to this, uh, this coronavirus uh, edition of The Zeitgeist. Uh, we are recording a social distancing compliant edition uh, of our podcast. Uh, and in fact, at great distance. Uh, our distance uh, is about 6,000 kilometers, uh, which is the distance from Washington, D.C. to Berlin. Um, so today, with senior fellow Peter Rashish, uh, director of the AICGS Geoeconomics Program, uh, we are talking with Holger Schmieding, who is with Berenberg, which is either the world's oldest or second oldest bank, depending on how you reckon. Um, it has been in continuous operation since 1590. Uh, Holger Schmieding is the chief economist of Berenberg, uh, and uh, we're going to talk today about the German and global economy, especially under the extraordinary uh, conditions of the pandemic. Um, so first of all, let me just welcome you, Holger, for the, to be with us and join us in the conversation. Yeah, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be on. All right, wonderful. Well, uh, you probably uh, have, uh, have noticed uh, today, uh, Thursday, March 26th, uh, the day in the United States started off with the unemployment figures um, for the previous week being released. Uh, and they convey the gravity of the situation um, in the U.S. economy uh, in really uh, is stunning terms. 3.3 uh, million new unemployment claims. That's the highest uh, in the history of these statistics. It is more than four times greater than the previous uh, peak, which was back in 1982. Uh, there are some estimates uh, out there that we can have 14 million uh, jobless by the summertime. Um, and uh, to, to, to draw a quotation from, from Ben uh, Herzon uh, from IHS Market, he said, quote, a large part of the economy just collapsed, which is a remarkable figure. So uh, the first the thing I think we, we would be interesting to talk about with you, Holger, you know, Germany was already teetering on the verge of a recession uh, early this year before the pandemic hit. Um, and, and so what are, you, what are you seeing now and, and where do you think this will go um, from your perspective? Well, the German economy probably fell into recession in March. Remember that over here, this side of the Atlantic, the pandemic got serious slightly early, about two weeks earlier than in the US. So we are likely to see in our own data a significant damage shortly. We currently only have confidence data, not hard economic counts. We will likely see our equivalent of the surge in US unemployment claims in what we call Kurzarbeiter. That is people who are not fired, but who are underemployed on the job, where anecdotal evidence indeed suggests that in the month of March, we are seeing a record rise in that number. So the damage over here is significant, and at the moment, probably ahead of the damage in the US, as we've simply fallen into this recession about two weeks earlier. And you mentioned the, the Kurzarbeit uh, data. Um, uh, when, when can we expect to, to, to see the, uh, the preliminary uh, figures for that? 
We should see in about a week's time the first data on that, and they will likely show for the month of March a record surge in that. We expect the same for April. It is quite possible that the old record in the number of people underemployed on the job, which was about 1.5 million in April 2009 in the wake of the great financial crisis, that that record will be beaten by a factor of two shortly. That is pretty remarkable. And if uh, I've seen some estimates um, from a variety of sources, the Keele Institute for the World Economy has revised their predictions and they are now um, uh, forecasting a fall in uh, a contraction of the German economy by somewhere between four and a half and nine percent. Um, I saw data from or, uh, predictions from Deutsche Bank last week that suggested possibly a, um, a contraction of 25 percent uh, in the second quarter. Um, uh, how how it, how do you assess those, uh, those predictions and what are your own expectations um, as, uh, as you look ahead uh, to, to the impact on the German economy? Well, it's very difficult to assess the impact at the moment. What we can say with certainty is that the month of April will be the worst we've had in peacetime. What we do not know is whether this will last throughout June. So, Depending on the assumptions, will the lockdowns be eased in June already or not? We can come up with numbers showing either, say, an 8% quarterly fall in GDP for the German economy for the second quarter, or maybe a 15, 1-5% fall for the German economy in the second quarter if this lasts throughout June. That's the grave uncertainty here. Remember that we over here calculate our data as straight quarter-on-quarter falls, not in the sense of annualizing the data, as is the case with the headline numbers in the US. So an 8% quarter-on-quarter fall would, in annualized terms, amount to something like a 33% quarterly drop, which is possible, quite possible, for the German economy in the second quarter, and it may even be worse than that. But again, the major point is that what you can switch off, you can also switch on. So depending on when exactly people are allowed to go shopping again, depending on that point in time, we will have a significant rebound, not exactly to the old level, but we will have equally staggering quarter on quarter and especially month on month gains again after the current dramatic plunge in the data. Well, Holger, clearly the economic consequences are serious and unprecedented, at least in the, in the memory of most people living today is probably not saying too much. Um, and, and what you just said would indicate you have some confidence um, that uh, what's often called a V-shaped recovery will take place. Does that mean you think that the measures that Germany and the European Union are taking both in the fiscal policy area and in the monetary policy area are the right ones or are there different or other additional measures you think that national and uh, European institutions should be taking? Well, first of all, I don't think there is a letter in the alphabet to really describe what is happening and what will continue thereafter we are likely to see not quite a V-shaped recovery because the switching on 
will not be as fast as the switching off. It will likely be staggered. So we should see a V on the way down and then a half V on the way up again. But we are likely to see, in my view, within two years, but it may really be two years, that we return roughly to the level of economic output that we had at the end of last year. If the fall now is deep, that is, if we have to switch off more for longer, then probably the rebound afterwards will also be almost as much sharper as the downturn was. As to the quality of the measures, yes, the measures that are being taken are absolutely the right ones. They are by and large, I think, up to the task. Our real problem at the moment in this country is to simply get the money to the people. The money is there, Parliament is willing the money, the amounts are huge. But to make sure that households, workers, companies actually get it is an administrative challenge. My guess is that the bigger the companies, the more important they are, the more likely they A, have the internal departments who know how to fill the claim easily, and the more likely it is that the one receiving the claim will know this is not two people, this is 20,000 people, or at least 2,000 people, and process the claim fast. So we will likely see that there is a discrepancy between, say, the mom and pop restaurant around the corner, which will struggle filling in the claims and getting immediate attention, and which may simply not survive the liquidity crunch, and other companies, say the well-connected Mittelstand, who know their local savings association, and the bigger companies, who of course know how, to, how the game works, those companies will likely, by and large, come through this with limited damage, with government help, whereas at the lower end, we will probably see significant pain. When there was a lot of discussion of where the rescue money went, and a lot of it went to, uh, there were claims a lot of it went to financial institutions and not so much to taxpayers, do you see a risk that uh, what you described just now could lead to a sense that there's some unfairness and who's getting the aid? And, and, and some any social repercussions of that? There is indeed a risk of that, as I just described, it is just administratively more difficult to reach the small people, the small companies, than the big ones. There is indeed that risk, and we will have to grapple with the political fallout. We'll do our very best, and we have a comparatively capable administration that probably will manage to do this at least as well as almost any other country, but indeed, there is a risk of exactly that. What we see at the moment, however, is at least for now, that the population has understanding for it. The population, to some extent, is asking for harsher measures to contain the virus rather than uh, less harsh, more relaxed measures. So I think for a number of weeks, we likely will get through with most people understanding that it's unusual. But if a month from now, we have this impression the big ones are being saved, and I'm not, that could have serious political repercussions. Olger, um, that is, uh, you know, that, that brings us in a way to a, another dimension of the, of the challenge. You mentioned the um, massive um, uh, assistance package that is making its way through the, uh, is through the Bundestag and then to the Bundesrat, which will involve about 156 billion euros, um, which is, as you said, unprecedented. Um, Germany's economic model, um, however, 
it seems to me, makes it particularly vulnerable to the international dimensions of, of these shocks because exports make up about 47% of German GDP. So um, when you talked about the switching on and the switching off, um, there's, a, there's a European and a broader international uh, component of that. So how do you see the, the international measures um, perhaps um, not moving as quickly as the German, uh, the German authorities? And what, imp what impact will that have on the speed of recovery, in your view? Well, for once, I th actually think that the German economic model is a significant advantage rather than disadvantage in this context. First of all, what we see is that the damage is much less pronounced in industry, where physical goods have to be transported, than in services, where often people have to meet face to face, such in restaurants. We've seen that in a number of surveys, which for many services are just absolutely dismal but which for manufacturing only show so far a comparatively modest contraction. So in this sense, Germany's reliance on manufacturing cross-border trade is probably less vulnerable to the coronavirus than, say, countries who are more concentrated on services. When this was a Chinese event, then, of course, the temporary interruption of supply chains with China was something that was a huge problem for German industry, potentially. But now that these supply chain concerns are actually easing out of China, and we focus on the domestic damage of lockdowns affecting mostly services, I would say that Germany will probably get through this less badly than, say, Italy, Spain, with a huge tourism sector, and probably about as badly or well as France. And in one other respect, Germany's economic model is, in this context, not too bad. Because we are used in this economy to huge gyrations in global demand, huge ups and downs in global trade, we have what we call automatic stabilizers that work rather well. Whereas other countries are now trying fast to emulate the German model of underemployment on the job, the already mentioned Kurzarbeiter, we have the bureaucracy to administer that. It is overworked at the moment, but at least those people in there know what to do. So my guess is that whatever the longer run problems with Germany's economic model, at the moment it probably enables Germany to cope, I would say a little less badly, coping well is probably saying too much, to cope a little less badly with the immediate challenge of the pandemic than other countries who have different traits. Um, part of that uh, could be uh, the uh, debt rate that was instituted several years ago in a certain way more broadly. Part of that could be the EU Stability and Growth Pact, which limits um, uh, national budget deficits of the member states. As part of Germany's uh, rescue plan, there's been a suspension of the debt break. And there's also been a suspension at the EU level of the, of the Stability and Growth Pact. Um, I don't know if you have a crystal ball, but to the extent you can, you can already uh, get a sense of this, do you think that this experience of the crisis is likely to have any long-term impact on how Germans debate the economy and on the German economic model? 
Well, actually, I think that the impact of this crisis is more likely to be in Germany to say that our model is actually working rather than not. Because we have often been criticized in this country for not running a budget deficit. And our response has always been, why should we run a budget deficit at full employment? We are saving for a rainy day. And now, well, we're not having a rainy day. We are having a bad hailstorm, the worst thunderstorm ever. But it is, in a way, from the German perspective, well, now we finally know why we saved money in the past. And hence, we think we can afford to really spend big time and to some extent, hopefully, underpin guarantees for other European countries who in the past, well, have not built up such funds as we have for the rainy day. So my guess is that one of the longer run impact of this will be a reappreciation that actually when times are good, you should save money because there can be times that are really bad and when you ought to be ready to have reserves for it. In the future, we will all be Schwäbische Hausfrauen. Um, yes, yes, I know. She's probably, <laughs> although the Schwäbische Hausfrau Angela Merkel is confined to her home office, because she had contact with somebody who tested positive, I think in this respect, she feel vindicated. Yeah, well, I think that's, uh, and you know, you mentioned uh, the, the European um, uh, context again, and I wanted to come back to that uh, because uh, you, you've suggested that there may be um, in the views of German, the German public, uh, a kind of vindication of Germany's approach to um, its fiscal um, austerity model. Uh, at the European level, this looks much more complicated. And, and there is, uh, on the one hand, a uh, uh, Germany as the largest economy in Europe uh, then will set uh, the tone for much of the discussion at the European Union level. There are calls from some uh, EU member states, especially a number of the Southern EU member states for um, what they're uh, referring to as Corona bonds uh, in some in some of the media, uh, Germany clearly has uh, is skeptical about that. So, what do you think is necessary at the European level, whether at the euro within the eurozone or at the EU level more broadly, um, in the, it, at this time? What's the international dimension of the response? Um, is it sufficient, or does there need to be more? This is a very good question, and this is actually, to some extent, which is worrying me most about the current situation beyond the medical emergency itself. The repercussions that this may have on the European level. We clearly have a central bank, the European Central Bank, that is doing its utmost to contain the damage. But on the, the fiscal side, the policy response on the national level is consistently and strong across nations within the Eurozone and the European Union. But the cooperation between nations of the Eurozone on the Euro level or the EU level is still lacking. And I'm afraid that we are missing a strong signal of solidarity here. I am personally very much in favor of joint debt not the euro bonds that is joint debt forever but of corona bonds to finance the unique challenge at the moment unfortunately this proposal which others and i have put forward has not yet gained enough traction in berlin and especially in the hague 
and some of the Baltic countries, there is still heavy resistance against such signal of solidarity. On a technical level, it is highly likely that we will do enough on the European level to support Italy in the sense that Italian yield spreads will not be allowed to blow out so that Italy could not finance it. This will be done through the European Central Bank. This will be done probably through something which we call the European Stabilization Mechanism, which helped to deal with the Euro crisis. Technically, that is all fine. But the strong political signal of solidarity, Corona bonds, this is Corona, this is joint bonds, we are in it together. I'm afraid that may be lacking, and that makes me concerned about the long-run future. The way we react to this crisis, individually, collectively, will probably shape our perceptions for a long time. We will all remember these days, like all Germans remember what happened, where they were when the wall came down. This is a crucial experience. And if now in Italy, for instance, the TV pictures of Chinese and Russian medical teams helping out in northern Italy are being contrasted, say, with a Dutch or German no or name to um, corona bonds, the reputation damage, not the financial damage, the reputation damage may be serious. So I think on the political side, while we do nationally and at the European Central Bank everything that's required, on the political side, the EU, the Eurozone, needs to send a stronger message of solidarity. This is a crisis where people who believe in science can easily prevail, where we can debunk all those who don't believe in science. This is where we can debunk some of these radicals from the right and the left who believe in weird theories, because this is a real challenge. But for that to happen, in a way you could say for the political mainstream to get out of this stronger, we also need to send pictures, messages that stick in people's imagination. And this is where currently I find on the European level, not the national level, on the European level, a bit of a gap. So if I understand you correctly, you're saying that not only would the corona bonds have a short-term uh, economic benefit, but they would have a longer-term benefit of creating more self-confidence in the European Union and the Eurozone and sort of boosting the, the EU's institutional resilience. Yes, that is my key thing. Alone, the word corona bonds alone is already something big. If people remember, who would know in Rome what it really is? Yeah? But if people remember German Chancellor Angela Merkel and her Dutch colleague, yeah, jointly greeted Corona bonds as a way to help Italy, that would stick in their memory. But if we do not send such pictures, then I'm afraid the Chinese are not bad at propaganda. You have to give them that. Whatever else they're doing, the same goes for Putin. Whatever nasty he does at home, he's not bad at propaganda. So if these pictures stick in their mind, in the minds of Italians, of Spaniards, that could be longer-term poison, and that would raise the risk that at some point in time, some political leader in Italy would really get backing for, why do we need this Europe? That's my longer-term political concern. Once again, it could go easily the other way. If the mainstream now is seen as managing the crisis well, then it could debunk the radicals. But if we do not, as the mainstream, grasp this opportunity when everybody is watching, then we could have a long-run problem.
You know, that, that um, uh, thinking of the long run also, um, when we think about the, the, what this means for globalization, uh, I'd be very interested to hear your assessment. You know, globalization is not going to end as a result of this pandemic. Um, but there will be so there is now already a disruption, and then there will probably be some reshaping. Um, and so, what do you think that is going to look like? Is it are we going to have rebuilt um, supply chains, perhaps with greater redundancy um, and a bit more resiliency, so the system is less brittle, as we've uh, experienced in the last uh, month or so? Or do you think something more fundamental is going to uh, succeed? You know, succeed uh, the globalization era that we've known for the last, um, you know, decade or uh, to even longer. Well, that's difficult to answer in the sense of whether it's an either-or here. It is probably almost all of what you've mentioned, and more on top of that. Definitely, we will likely see in the realm of goods um, that supply chains are being brought closer to home again that companies will make sure they have more than one supplier, even if the second supplier isn't quite as cheap as the first supplier. There will probably be a major boost to uh, three-dimensional printing, these new techniques. There will be some reshoring of production on that. There will be more inventories. There will be simply to be prepared for another disruption, be more crisis um, preparation all along this, this will mean less globalization, some deglobalization for goods, mind you. I would expect, however, also significant technological progress in we are now having this meeting differently from how we would have had in the past. We are communicating much more digitally. I would expect that when it comes to a great value creator, one of the biggest in the world, namely the value added that comes out of new information technologies, out of digital, that there will be more exchange, more technological progress, more attempts to utilize it. So I would say while in the old style, the rearm of goods, physical things to touch, globalization will go a little into reverse. We will probably have globalization uh, accelerating cross-border exchanges accelerating in the rearm of new technologies, dig digital technologies, so that we send across borders more of the blueprints, even more than before, whereas the actual production or using the blueprints for three-dimensional printers will be more local. These are key economic consequences. And then, of course, as already discussed in the European context, we have to think about a lot of political consequences which are unclear but may be profound. And do you think that kind of globalization after the crisis will add costs for consumers and businesses, or in the end it'll be, it'll be the same in terms of the, uh, the costs? It's hard to say. My guess is that in the end it might actually benefit consumers in the sense that the extra costs which we will have for goods will be to some extent one-off. Yeah, We all build high inventories and then we have them. We do some reshoring. Yes, that is higher costs. It means a bit less long-term competitive pressure, which is a slight long-term negative. But on the other hand, I would expect a spurt in the new technologies or in the application of new technologies that we discussed. And that could ultimately 
help us to transition to a more digital economy faster. What we're seeing now is, well, look at me. I have never done this before, that I have, say, three, four, five digital conferences from home. If we get the hang of it, if we master the technologies, perhaps better than in this first attempt between, the, between us, we will likely do these things more often and thus save costs or be able, by conferencing in more people, to offer our viewers and listeners a better product. In the end, it's a crisis that typically spurs innovation and progress, but it is a balanced thing. For the next few years, we might see more of the negatives, the building inventories. For longer, we may see more of the technological advances which are spurred by this. That's um, a, a, a great segue to uh, perhaps what will be our last question. Holger, we thank you for your time. Um, you know, we haven't talked about U.S. policy in this discussion. Uh, in a way, uh, that reflects the fact that the United States uh, has, has not played really an international leadership role when it comes to the economic response to the pandemic. Um, uh, and... You know, there, there are a variety of arguments uh, uh, that surround that, um, but clearly the impulse of the U.S. government uh, under President Trump um, has been to focus on national uh, measures um, rather than the international context. So uh, my question is, what, what is missing and what, what could or should the United States be doing um, uh, in, in helping to shape the international response to the pandemic? Or do you think this is a, a, a situation where national responses are, uh, are the most important at this stage? Well, yes, I would say the biggest contribution the U.S. could do is to have a national U.S. response rather than a city by city or federal state by federal state response in the U.S. We, of course, in Europe are removed from the US situation. We do not know really what's going on. We are afraid that the US, with its less developed welfare state, may suffer a bigger crisis than it should. We are a bit afraid that the US is um, not utilizing the advantage which it should have by having learned about the Italian situation sort of two weeks before the same situation now seems to be erupting to some extent in New York. So over here, we are a bit concerned that the US is not getting its act together fast. And I work in financial markets. One of the key concerns in financial markets is, of course, the fate of the US economy. And if it now turns out that the US economy goes into the same situation as the Italian economy, because it hadn't learned the Italian lessons. That, of course, is bad news for the global economy, including our European economy and our markets for the next few months. So while I don't think we need US leadership on having a coordinated response of global finance ministers, we are all doing on our national levels a lot as finance ministers. While it's good enough between central banks that the Fed is actually taking the lead on dollar swap lines for everybody. The key contribution of the U.S. would be to get the pandemic under control in the U.S. as fast as possible for the sake of the U.S., its citizens, and the world economy as well. Well, Holger Schmieding, uh, I want to thank you uh, so much for joining us um, from Berlin uh, via Zoom for this discussion. Uh, and I think we'll be doing a lot more of this uh, in, in the coming uh, days and weeks uh, to 
keep uh, the information flow to our listeners uh, and, uh, and you've given us great insights into the German and European responses and uh, I want to thank you on behalf of, uh, of us here at AICGS, um, uh, but also on behalf of all of our listeners. So thank you very much. You're most welcome. Thank you for your interest. Thanks for listening to The Zeitgeist, a podcast produced by the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies at Johns Hopkins University. Send us your feedback by email to info at AICGS.org or catch us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at AICGS. Don't forget to check out AICGS.org for more information from today's episode. Auf Wiederhören.